Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. This is episode 1608, Jewish Traditions and Earth Care. My guest today is Nadi Passau, co-founder and executive director of Jewish Farm School in Philadelphia. He joins me to continue the conversation about faith and earth care based, this time, on the traditions of Judaism. This episode serves as an introduction to these ideas and Nadi's background, as, similar to the conversation with Ramis Kent in Islam, there's a great deal of ground to cover before getting to the conversation proper, because my understanding of Judaism is very limited, and I pepper this discussion with questions to get myself up to speed. Regardless of your background, however, this is a good place to begin if understanding the cultural underpinnings for the rituals, customs, and beliefs that make up the modern world are part of your permaculture practice. This promises to be the start of something that leads to more practical ideas and techniques stemming from Jewish teachings. Before we begin, if you find this podcast or any of the archives inform or transform your thoughts and thinking, there are several ways to help the show. The first is through Patreon, where you can become a member and receive a variety of benefits, including first access to episodes, discounts to partnering vendors, and advertisement-free shows. The second is to get involved with the Permaculture Podcast community, joining the conversation at facebook.com slash the Permaculture Podcast, or on Twitter, where the show is at permaculturecst. If you'd like to check out the microblogging that I'm doing, You'll find that at instagram.com forward slash permaculturepodcast. That's the place where I've been putting a lot of those small projects and things that are going on around Seppi's place and in my wanders about the world. You can also leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, and share a link to an episode that changed your life with friends and family on social media. Finally, I would like to thank today's sponsors, Good Seed Company and Permi Kids. Good Seed Company has been in business for over 40 years and believes we have an inalienable right to open pollinated non-GMO seeds for common use. These are the seeds that were saved by our ancestors for thousands of years that can sustain us today and contribute to a bountiful future for the generations yet to come. Find out more about the rich history of this company and the importance of seed saving at goodseedco.net or shop the catalog of ecologically grown organic seeds online store.goodseedco.net. And of course, you'll find links to that and all of the other resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. The second sponsor of the day is Permi Kids, run by the incredible Jen Mendez, who has created a wealth of information to inspire and nurture those teachers, parents, and families interested in incorporating permaculture education into the lives of children in the community or at home. She offers a free ongoing podcast where you can connect and learn more about how to transform your life to a rich, ecologically sound existence that involves children and learning at every step of the way. If you want to dive deeper, you may be interested in the Community Experiential Education by Design program, which focuses on young children, ages 3 to 8, and their families. Or another option are the Edge Alliance courses. Upcoming subjects include Globally Together on March 13th and Creative Integration on April 10th. Find out more at permikids.com. If you'd like to become a sponsor or advertise with a podcast, get in touch. You'll find complete contact information in the show notes and at the end of this episode. Now then, on to Nati. I'll join you again afterwards. Then, if you could give us a bit of your background and biography, and then we can lead the discussion from there into Judaism and faith and earth care. So I grew up just in the suburbs of Philadelphia in a uh, fairly traditional Jewish family. 
our family identifies as kind of what's called modern orthodox, which is orthodoxy being the most kind of traditional approach to Judaism. Modern orthodoxy is the movement that kind of tries to straddle two worlds, both honoring the tradition in a very uh, serious way, while also um, not cutting ourselves off from the modern world. So both my parents are academics. They teach math and English at the university level. And so there was always a strong emphasis in my house on secular topics and subjects as a, in, in addition to uh, Judaics in terms of my schoolwork. And then I went to Jewish day schools all the way through elementary and high school. But the type of Jewish day schools that I went to were not orthodox. My elementary school was part of the conservative movement, which is a little bit of a more liberal movement. And my high school was what's called a community school or a pluralistic school where there were Jews of all backgrounds there. And so growing up, I was also kind of straddling these two worlds a little bit, the more traditional community that my family was a part of in the synagogue that we went to, and then a more diverse Jewish community that I was experiencing through my friends at school. And in high school, I started to get interested in environmental stuff to a certain degree, primarily through the form of kind of outdoor wilderness trips and rock climbing and backpacking and things like that. I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania here in Philadelphia and studied religion and environmental studies. Through my time in school, I was spending my summers at a Jewish overnight camp leading wilderness trips. And that was really where I started to get into this connection between spirituality and our experience in the outdoors and seeing not just in the Jewish tradition where there's countless examples of the wilderness being a place that people go to to seek refuge, to seek guidance, to seek insight um, into their lives or into the world, and then also experiencing that very much so firsthand through being on these types of trips and programs and then guiding younger participants in that as well. The summer after I graduated from college, I went to a place called the Institute for Social Ecology up in Vermont. It had some relationship with Goddard College and at the time was operating on a nice piece of land in uh, Plainfield, Vermont. And I was attending a three-week course in sustainable building design and land use. And that was the first time that I encountered the concept of permaculture. Eric Tonsmeyer came up for a day to do some, present a slideshow and some ideas uh, that must have been as he was starting to work on edible forest gardens. So that was the first time I kind of, I heard this term and, and it stuck a little bit, but I wouldn't say it, it sunk in that deeply. I was really interested in the natural building work that we were doing in this course. And it was also the first time I was encountering a community of people that were kind of from that world, from the permaculture world, from the sustainability world, who were really interested in living off the land and being really involved with the various processes of growing their own food, building their own buildings, making their own clothes, whatever it might be. I remember we got in the, I got a little packet in the mail before the program started with some of the logistical information. And one of the things that it talked about was the food that we'd be eating and, and it had their food priority list and it kind of ranked, you know, their highest priority being organic food that they grow themselves. And then the next highest priority is organic food from the farm next door and so on and so on. It kind of moved down and I just had never seen anyone articulate a kind of a value system attached to the food that they were eating in that way. And I thought that was really, really powerful. And then I came back to Philly for the rest of the summer and helped run a garden program at an inner city high school, working with, collectively we were working with maybe about 80 high school students 
on a few different teams of uh, working in the garden and building garden structures and, and teaching about food and healthy eating and nutrition and all sorts of things like that. After college, I went to work for a place called the Teva Learning Center. Teva is the Hebrew word for nature. The Teva Learning Center is kind of the only program of its kind. It focuses primarily on running a four-day forest ecology program for sixth and seventh graders um, at Jewish day schools. So when I was in seventh grade, we did a nature trip at a place called the Poconos Environmental Education Center. And a lot of schools do that kind of programming for sixth, fifth, sixth, seventh graders. So this is kind of a Jewish version of that, where we spent a ton of time in the woods. This is in Northwest Connecticut, learned a lot about kind of Northeastern deciduous forests and forest ecology and teaching kind of the basic water cycle and the soil cycle and things like that alongside kind of the underlying Jewish values and ideas that can create a bit of a Jewish mandate for earth care, for stewardship. And it was that experience. I worked there for two years and that experience was really transformative for me. It was an amazing community of staff. There were about 15 staff people, educators and staff people who lived on site. Each week we'd have a different group of students come up, spend many hours a day out in the woods with them doing a really fun and amazing activities and see their eyes light up. And a lot of students who struggled in the classroom in that context really thrived. And, and then as a community who was living there, it was the first time I really experienced a pluralistic Jewish community that really worked. So people were coming from all different backgrounds and perspectives. There were people who were identified as very traditional or orthodox and people who identified as secular and who knew very little about Jewish tradition and everyone in between. And together we had to figure out, okay, well, how do we all live together in the same house? How do we eat together when we might have different eating restrictions and practices? How do we celebrate together when we might have different perspectives on, on that? And so that in and of itself was a really valuable experience. And then I also got some great opportunity to learn about environmental education and, and how to work with kids in the woods. And so that really kind of set me on my professional path. Coming out of that experience, I, I was getting kind of drawing on my time at the Institute for Social Ecology, was, was interested in what I was starting to call kind of practical environmental education. So um, how do we teach the values of sustainability and stewardship while also teaching practical skills of sustainability. So whether that's gardening or farming or uh, natural building, things like that. And that kind of prompted myself and a handful of other people who were connected to Teva. And there was another program at the time, Adama, uh, which is a Jewish farming program for people in their 20s and 30s, based on the same at the same retreat center. Folks who were involved with Teva and with Adama, a bunch of us came together to form the Jewish Farm School. Um, with the the original idea for the Jewish Farm School was to we imagined it as a rural school, either a full-on high school or a place where high school students could come for a semester, work on a farm, engage in really high-level academics and intellectual conversations around sustainability and Jewish tradition, while also working on a, on an operational organic farm. That was kind of the original vision, and the organization has taken a, a very different path over the years, but. That kind of set me on my path. And then after a couple of years in New England, moved back to Philly, went back to work at that same inner city high school running an after school garden program. And that really introduced me to a lot of the urban agriculture movement in Philadelphia and a lot of the food justice issues that 
um, I'd heard a little bit about, but, but working in the inner city and working at that high school with kids really opened my eyes to a lot of the challenges that they face and a lot of the injustices that are embedded in, in our food system today, which got me really inspired to, to have that be the focus of, of my work. And your work with Jewish Farm School is how I became aware of you through our shared friend and colleague, Ben Weiss, as he's done some teaching with you. And as I understand, you two have known each other for a long time. Yeah, I met Ben very kind of randomly. I'd been connected to this group called Greener Partners, which runs a number of different educational farms in the greater Philadelphia area. And I went to meet with the guy who started it, and he took me to a couple of the farms. And sure enough, Ben was one of the farmers at that point. This is probably back in... 2005, 2006, something like that. And so we met briefly then, and then we stayed a little bit in touch. And then a few years ago, Jewish Farm School, we we changed our focus to be primarily focused on our programming in the Philadelphia area. And at that point, I started promoting some of those programs, and and he reached back out. And so we reconnected then, and we've we've taught a couple of uh, classes together and organized a couple of other larger programs as well. And you mentioned your first exposure to permaculture was through Eric Tonesmeyer. What continuing like permaculture education have you had since that first introduction? In 2009, we organized a PDC, a permaculture design course, that was taught by Ethan Rowland and Steve Gabriel. Ethan from Appleseed Permaculture and Steve Gabriel from the Finger Lakes Permaculture Institute. At the time, Jewish Farm School was about to launch what was our biggest project to date, which was creating a educational farm on the grounds of a brand new Jewish environmental overnight camp in the Hudson Valley. A good friend of mine from childhood had received a big grant to start this new Jewish environmental summer camp, and he knew he wanted to have a farm. At the time, JFS was kind of looking for a place to set up shop. We still had that vision of having our own farm in a rural co- context and being able to offer different types of programs. And so he invited us to partner with with him. The, the name of the camp is Eden Village Camp, and it's in the Putnam Valley, New York. And so as part of our planning process, we kind of self-organized a permaculture course that was primarily geared towards the people who would be working on the camp and the farm. Um, and then we opened it up. We had a few other people who signed up. So we had about 15 people. Uh, we did a two week, one week in Vermont on our friend's land up there, and then one week on the grounds of the camp. And then the camp, the property became kind of the canvas for our design projects. So that was a really wonderful experience because not only were a bunch of us who were about to embark on this massive collaboration together, not only did we get trained in the same design principles and vocabulary but then we also actually had the opportunity to start putting ideas down on paper about the actual property, some of which have remained on paper and not really gone anywhere since. But if you look at kind of where the farm stands now and some of the different design elements, they certainly emerged from our, our PDC back uh, before the camp even got going. And it was during that course that all these connections between permaculture and Judaism started to click for me. I had already been teaching about the connections more broadly between Judaism and sustainability. And then as I was learning different permaculture concepts and ideas and tools, I was seeing how they were really overlapping in in certain ways with some of the key Jewish practices as well. We had, I forget if, if it was Ethan or Steve, but one of them at one point in the course, when we were talking about the definitions of permaculture, I think it was Ethan who said his, one of his favorite definitions of permaculture is 
applied common sense. So it's like as you're learning these different principles and practices, you're just kind of nodding your head. You're like, yeah, duh, I knew that already. That seems kind of obvious. And it's just kind of giving language to, the, to that approach. And I just love thinking about it in those ways. It's not, in some ways it can be very complex, but in some ways it's just applied common sense. It's pretty simple. Um, it's just about, you know, allowing ourselves to think simply enough about systems to make them more, more sustainable and, and more effective. It's funny you mentioned that applied common sense because I had a friend who borrowed David Holmgren's permaculture, read the whole thing, and come back to me. They hand it to me and they go, so why did you have to write a whole book on this or anybody? Because it's just common sense. It's just what we do, right? Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So then as you saw this connection between the earth and Judaism and then the practice of permaculture, how has that kind of influenced your perspective on faith and earth care? And where are the places that they intersect explicitly for you? Yeah. So I guess one thing that I, I would kind of preface this with a few kind of caveats, which is one of the things that I, I, I mentioned a bit about my background Jewishly and my family being a modern Orthodox, very traditional family I currently don't identify as, as modern Orthodox. Oftentimes when I'm signing up for various Jewish conferences or programs, there's a whole checklist of identities that you can choose from. And the one I, I always go with is I'm just Jewish. And there's Judaism as a religion. And then there's kind of this broader perspective where Judaism is a culture and the religious aspects of Judaism are one part of it. But there's also Jewish music and Jewish art and Jewish food and Jewish literature. And, and that is not necessarily an extension of the religion of Judaism, but it's, it's rather emerges from this rich culture of Judaism. So I have a practice, a Jewish practice that draws from my traditional upbringing, but in certain ways I've certainly deviated from that, from the more traditional approach. And I guess the way that I relate to Judaism from a religious perspective, I, I very much take the the idea when it comes to religion that they're all kind of paths on the same mountain. That organized religion is a way, it's a set of vocabulary and rituals that give a collection of people language to use to help design and create the communities that they, they want to be a part of. So, when it comes to prayer, for example, a person can go out into the woods and write their own prayer. And, and that actually is a pretty traditional Jewish practice to do. There's also something nice about being in a room with a group of people and everyone's singing the same prayer and you can bring your voices together. Um, and so that's kind of how I relate to Judaism. It's the tradition and practice of my ancestors. And it's been passed down over the several thousand years. And it kind of arrived at me in some form that may or may not resemble what it looked like a couple thousand years ago, but that's what was given to me. And it's a set of tools and it's a set of uh, vocabulary and concepts. I don't think of it as, for me, my, my understanding of God, for example, is very unclear. I don't have this kind of very strong dogmatic approach to, to Judaism. I, I love it. I love the culture of it. I love the tradition. I love the songs. I love the heritage of it. Because that, it's kind of deeply ingrained in me. But so when I start to think about, well, what does Judaism have to say about sustainability? For me, it becomes less about, oh, well, God said this, and therefore we should do that. 
And it's more about this is a tradition that contains within it a whole lot of wisdom for how to design our communities and design our world. So what are those nuggets of wisdom that it contains that relate specifically to how we relate to the planet and our role within the larger world of creation? In hearing that, it makes me think of how permaculture pooled from indigenous cultures, the various pieces that come together to create a sustainable system. So in a way, and I apologize for the way that I use the language here, this relationship that you have to this wisdom tradition is almost, in a sense, like a Jewish indigenous kind of knowledge that's passed down to you through the space and time of this culture. And from that, you're pulling the pieces that are most useful to you in caring for the earth and developing these systems of earth care and community. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned that because a topic that has come up a lot in the Jewish, in the Jewish environmental world and among some of my colleagues is, you know, is Judaism an indigenous religion, right? Indigenous meaning connected to a particular piece of land. And kind of my understanding of it is that on one hand, it very much is an indigenous religion. So much of the practices, the holidays, the calendar, the guidelines, the instructions for how we set ourselves up stem from the reality of living on a particular piece of land, which is ancient Israel. And what happened when there were two temples and when the second temple was destroyed just after the the turn of the millennium, so around 70, the year 70, the second temple was destroyed and the Jews were exiled. So for 2,000 years, the Jewish people were scattered all over the world and were not on their piece of land. And so the religion adapted in order to be able to survive while simultaneously stressing the importance of that particular piece of land. So for example, when Jews pray, they face Jerusalem. Wherever they might be in the world, they face Jerusalem. If they're in the land of Israel, they face the city of Jerusalem. And if they're in the city of Jerusalem, they face where the temple once stood. So there is a centrality to this particular piece of land. And you see a lot of language in various texts and prayers and practices that relate to the ecology of that land and the, and the cycles of that land. So Judaism, as far as I know, and I'm certainly not an expert in this, but as far as I know, I, I'm not sure how many other indigenous cultures were exiled from the land that, that was home to them and were able to adapt and survive, especially over the course of 2,000 years. It's a pretty remarkable achievement. And part of that adaptation was a real distinct separation from land, right? So as Jews wandered all over the world and were setting up shop in different parts of the world, you don't find as much of a connection to the land where they found themselves and the cycles of that particular place. And instead, they're still celebrating harvest festivals on the calendar that is connected to the land of Israel. So is modern-day Judaism still an indigenous religion when there is not really so much of a connection to the particular land where people find themselves? Or is it because it still draws on that connection to a different piece of land? And there have been people in the Jewish environmental movement who have adapted rituals today to reflect more of the local ecology where they find themselves. So for example, in the fall, there's a, a harvest festival called Sukkot, where 
traditionally Jews build these kind of temporary shabby huts in their backyards. And during the course of the week, they are eating all their meals in the hut and welcoming guests into the hut. And some people sleep in their huts. And there are four species that traditionally we pull together and use in some of the rituals of that holiday. And they are a palm, a palm branch, branches of, of a willow tree, branches of myrtle, and a citron, which, uh, which is kind of similar to a, a lemon. And so these four species are kind of bundled together, and then people traditionally hold them and say a blessing and shake them in different directions. The palm and the citron are certainly not native to Northeast United States. And, you know, and so people are shipping these plants all over the world for the sake of this holiday. There have been people who have kind of created their own version of that based on their local ecology, right? Now, traditionally, more traditional Jews would, would look at that practice and say, hey, that's, no, you can't do that. Like this is, it comes from this particular piece of land and this particular ecology, and that's what we have to remain focused on. And other people are, are looking more to it, continuing to adapt the religion to continue to be earth-based, but have it be earth-based for where they find themselves. As time passes, the community, the culture, and the religion adapt to a new sense of place. Yeah, totally. Although, again, I think what the Jewish community in the United States right now is also a pretty unique phenomenon because the United States has been one of the friendliest countries to Jewish people historically. And so Jews in America are able to assimilate much more easily into the broader culture of the United States, for better or for worse. You know, I, I often feel like that is largely not, I mean, the, the safety and security that Jews experience here is great, obviously, but the fact that there's a very high rate of Jews who grow up in the United States who kind of lose any real substantial connection to Judaism and just become part of the mainstream American culture, to me is, you know, there's something sad about that. And I would even make the argument that that is kind of counter to what Judaism is. I think that there's a reading, a way to read Judaism historically that Judaism has always been about speaking truth to power and rejecting the non-sustainable mainstream culture of its time, whether it was ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, whatever it was that there was always a recognition that, hey, what, what you're doing is not sustainable and we're going to have, we're going to separate ourselves from that and we're going to keep a tight, close, insular community based around these other values that we think are core. And that is in large part how Jews were able to survive over the last few thousand years. And in the Jewish community is the big discussion about the American Jewish community and how quickly Jews are assimilating into mainstream American culture and, and that Judaism might disappear here or become very limited to an even smaller group of people. And so, you know, the insularness that Jews have, have, have kind of created over this time of exile has, on one hand, created real division between Jews and non-Jews and also has played a, a part in keeping Judaism alive. So it's, it's a blessing and a curse in a certain way. Then do you see your work with Jewish Farm School as helping to keep those traditions alive and introduce them to these next generations of not only Jews, but also non-Jews who are interested in these practices? I think our work plays a few different roles. So one is for 
someone who is, you know, maybe grew up Jewish but never found it to be particularly meaningful, but they're very interested in food, farming, sustainability, permaculture, hopefully through the programs that we're that we offer and the classes that we teach, they're able to see Judaism in a different light and find parts of of Judaism that are meaningful and that they can connect with. For people who are already connected Jewishly but don't know much about the environment or sustainability, potentially our classes and programs are able to give them a new perspective on how they should be how they could be living in relation to the natural world. You know, so there's a lot of people who grew up very in very traditional circles who wouldn't think twice about using disposable dishes on a regular basis, who, who would never think that earth care is a Jewish value. Because unfortunately, that just hasn't been stressed, even though there are Jewish laws and practices that go back thousands of years that I would say make a case for earth care. I think in large part because of this idea of, of having been exiled for the last 2000 years. And, and therefore, there's a, you know, I heard this analogy once, which I thought was really great, which is, do you plant perennials on rented land? Are you really trying to sink deep roots into a place that you feel like you're actually only there temporarily? I think that the exile mentality that has dominated Jewish life for 2,000 years has essentially led to a mentality that the place that we are right now is not so important, right? One day, hopefully, we will get back to our homeland. And so we don't actually need to invest in this particular piece of land, in this particular ecology. And so while other laws got stressed to a very extreme degree, the practices around earth care may be less so. And so unfortunately, you see in traditional circles, oftentimes care for the environment is not necessarily seen as a paramount Jewish value. What's happened over the last 20 years or so is there's been this growing Jewish environmental movement that has really made great strides in having more and more people recognize, actually, you know what, earth care is a Jewish value. This is something that we need to be thinking about. You know, in Judaism, one of the, one of the ways that traditional Jews are, are most strict is in terms of their eating practices with keeping kosher. But traditionally, keeping kosher means something very specific, and it actually doesn't have anything to do with whether the food was raised sustainably or how the workers were treated it has to do with some very specific guidelines around which animals you can eat, how they're slaughtered, how the meat is prepared, uh, mixing of different ingredients, things like that. There's been a big push for people to say, hey, let's update that. Now that we know the implications of our food system and we understand that there's a whole slew of issues that relate to how food is being produced from an environmental perspective, from a workers' rights perspective, we need to expand our understanding of what it means to keep kosher. Or at least, if we're not going to expand the definition of what it means to keep kosher, we're going to, alongside making sure that food is kosher, we're also going to make sure that it's produced in a sustainable way or a just way. So there is a push now, but it still is definitely on the fringes of the Jewish community. Hopefully, through the work that we do, we're able to kind of make more compelling connections between people and Jew Jewish tradition, and also give voice to the Jewish environmental ethic that I think really stems from the origins of our tradition and amplify that voice in the modern world. 
Nati, I really appreciate that you joined me today to give this first introduction to the ideas of Judaism, earth care, and your background and work with Jewish Farm School in Philadelphia. As this serves an introduction to a longer conversation, do you have any final thoughts that might kind of serve as a way to close this conversation, but also introduce our follow-up to this, where we dig in more to the Judaic traditions and how they relate directly to earth care and the actions that we can take today? Well, first, I just want to say thank you for this opportunity, because it's been a great conversation so far, and I'm, I'm excited for, for more down the road. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of kind of key principles that, for me, have helped shape my understanding of this connection between Judaism and the earth and, and, and our role in caring for that earth. They kind of emerge from the creation story that is told in, in Breshit, which is the Hebrew for Genesis. And first of all, I, I would just say that the idea of a creation myth, a creation story, is an important one when formulating a worldview, right? Whether you are someone who might understand the creation stories from Genesis in a literal sense or as metaphor or some combination of the two, there's a real value in unpacking what the creation mythology of, of your tradition, what framework it provides you for the role that we play on the planet. And there's a couple of key things that come up in the, in the creation story that I often draw from. The first is that when humans are created, they are created from the Hebrew word is Adama, which means earth. And as you may know, the first human's name is Adam. And so there's this direct connection where the person is created from the, the substance of the ground, from the earth itself. It's similar to, you know, the word human is connected to humus, but we don't really say that so much. We talk about people. In English, we don't really say that so much. So I've heard a, there's a rabbi here in Philly, Arthur Waskow, who's been a real pioneer in the Jewish environmental world for many, many years. And he's, he asked the question, what would it, how would it change our perspective if in English we referred to each other as earthlings all the time instead of people? And would that change our perspective in any way about our relationship to the planet? So in Hebrew, we have it it's etymological. It's right there that the, the word for, for earth or ground is Adama and the word for human is Adam. So we are very much, we come from the earth. We emerge from it just as we see much of, of life emerge from the earth. The second idea is that in the story, it says that humans are created in the image of God. And something we can go into a lot more detail next session is thinking about, well, what exactly does that mean? And I like to think of it as looking at the creation story as a design process, right? There's a design process that is followed. And for humans being created in the divine image, one of the things that we have to see ourselves as is designers. Just as the world was designed, we too are in a position to design our worlds, our communities, our homes, our societies. And that is a, a, an idea that very much jumped out in my permaculture training, this idea that we're all designers all the time. It's just a question of whether we're doing it with intention or not, and whether we're, we're employing good design or poor design. So this idea that we're all designers is, is super important. And then I think the last piece that I'll, I'll say that, again, we can go into a lot more detail down the road, is that there's kind of two versions of the creation story, Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. There's kind of two different versions of the story, and, and in some ways they line up, in other ways they don't. The first one is this kind of seven days of creation, 
And in the Judeo-Christian world, it's where we get this idea of a seven-day week, and the seventh day being Shabbat, being the Sabbath. And when the idea of keeping Shabbat, of having a day each week where we refrain from work and we refrain from engaging in commerce and we refrain from taking lives of animals or doing any sort of kind of destructive or even productive activity, this idea that one day out of the week should be a day for us to rest, we're instructed to do so because God did so in the creation story. And you might ask the question, well, why does God need to take a rest? The God that's presented in the Jewish Torah is a God that is all-powerful, all-knowing, shouldn't need to take a rest for any real kind of human reason. So I, for me, one of the main reasons that I have seen in that is that the creation story is very much a model for us as human beings. How is it that we should go out in the world and do our work? And if you break down the creation story and you analyze it through the lens of a design process, you actually see there's a lot of specific steps that are taken, specific strategies for sustainability that are employed in this process. And I think that one of the most important ones is this idea that there's a day of rest every week. It's the giant exhale that we all collectively get to experience. And in my permaculture course, when we were sharing this idea a little bit with the instructors who were very experienced and knowledgeable permaculturists and, and permaculture educators, Ethan and, and Steve were both really inspired by this idea. They said, yeah, we have this saying, you know, in permaculture, when does the designer become the recliner? And even in the permaculture world where everyone is so focused on sustainability and, you know, we design our systems so that they can kind of take care of themselves and we can kind of sit back and relax. Many people who are actively engaged in the world of permaculture are working really hard and it doesn't feel personally sustainable. And we have this model in our tradition that actually everybody one day a week should have that day to just fully rest and be. You've got six days to work in the garden and one day to be in the garden. You've got six days to think about how you can transform a tree into garden beds and furniture and a home. And you've got one day out of the week to look at the tree and say, wow, that is a beautiful tree. And that's it. And I don't need to think anything else about that tree right now. And I think that, and we, we'll get into more detail about how that's just part of a larger cycle. The weekly Shabbat is just part of a larger cycle of sustainability. But um, I think that is one of the key points um, that we take away that for me has really shaped my worldview is how I as a human being can be a designer for sustainability and justice in the world and how I, I need to approach the, the relationship with the world with humility and gratitude. As that is the way to end our week and to rest, it is a great place to end this first conversation and allow space for that shared exhale and a period of contemplation before we pick this up again. Thank you so much for joining me today to have this discussion. It's been incredibly enlightening, and I'm definitely going to have to listen to our conversation a few times before we have the next one because of everything that you brought to us today. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, I look forward to, uh, to more down the road. And that was Nadi Passau. You can find out more about him and his work at jewishfarmschool.org. Coming out of this, Nadi's closing notes grab hold of me and connect the thread of the faiths of Abraham, of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, through the creation story of Genesis. 
in that origin, we come from the earth, made from the dirt or clay. Those few inches of soil that cover the land allow crops to grow and animals to be fed. Though the earth is covered by so much water, and there are traditions of fishermen or of coming from the surf, it is from earth that these faiths that encompass more than half the world's population fix as where we come from. From that it seems as a natural fit, as a non-theologian, to tend that land from which we were born. Whatever may happen in the next life, what we have is this world, this Eden, given to each of us by virtue of our own birth. We are shepherds, gardeners, tenders of the wild. Let's remember that every day that we step out into the world, when we make the decisions about how to care best for Earth, ourselves, and each other. If there's any way I can help you to explore these ideas of faith and Earth care, or the path that you are walking along, get in touch. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Send me an email, show at permaculturepodcast.com. You can also drop something in the post, the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. And a few announcements. The first is Wild Cooperative, a budding community started by a couple on 16 acres in Crawford, Colorado. They're looking for folks interested in building a permaculture-based biocentric community. Read more about this project and what they're looking to accomplish at wildcooperative.wordpress.com. In particular, if you want to know the most about what they're doing, look for the entry from February 15th or from the link in the show notes, which fully details what it is that they're doing and also has satellite and other pictures about the location and layout of the land. Behind the scenes, things at Seppi's Place continue to be dynamic and ever-changing, something both Eric Perot and Ethan Hughes commented on about the early stage of creating community. Seppi, Eric, Kendra, and I are checking in on a nearly daily basis individually, with text messages and conversations on Facebook flying around to stay in touch and cover issues that arise in the moments of life, all while working and coordinating social events together and having regular meetings every other week about the bigger projects and pieces we're working on. With that idea of social events, if we held an open house at Seppi's Place sometime this spring or summer, would you be interested in attending? Let me know so we can put a date on the calendar and begin planning the event. In drawing this episode to a close, the next interview is an introduction to the Philadelphia Orchard Project with Robin Mello, and from there I'm not sure what exactly will come out next as I'm writing a number of scripts for Permabytes and longer episodes based on some questions that it have been posed to me, as well as have episodes in the queue from the Philadelphia Round Table recording, which is two episodes by itself, the in-person with Victoria of Charm City Farms, which has a companion piece there as well, which was a more of a round table conversation with myself, Victoria, and Eric, and the audience members who attended the Charm City Farm Johnston Square Open House in Baltimore, and also an interview with Eric Olson about professional permaculture and the work that he's doing at the Permaculture Skills Center. Tons going on and more happening every day. So I'm going to go get to that. And until the next time we're together, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.